This is Medieval Death Trip for Tuesday, November 21st, 2017, episode 47, Concerning Ragnarok. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. As I record this, Taika Waititi's Thor Ragnarok has just been unseated from the top of the weekend box office charts by Justice League, but it remains currently number one for November so far. And since we've been on a little Norse kick lately, I thought it might be fun to look at some of the original Ragnarok sources. We've had an informal tradition for the past two years of presenting gentler, kinder, homier sorts of texts for Thanksgiving season. This is not going to fit that theme. But a corollary theme of our Thanksgiving episodes has been troublesome guests and visitors, and I think we can just about cover that. I'll confess that I'm not very knowledgeable about Marvel's Thor, um, especially not beyond the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You might have noticed in my little nerd biography I offered a couple of episodes back that I didn't mention comic books, and that's because they didn't feature much in my childhood. Uh, I wasn't into superheroes. Most of what I know about superhero comics today comes from the movie versions uh, and two decades of reading The Onions AV Club and listening to comic book nerds talk on podcasts and in person, which means actually I think I've picked up quite a lot. Um, but not enough to feel confident trying to walk through a compare-contrast between Marvel's Asgard and the medieval version. And note, I do say medieval version and not original version, and there's a good reason for that. Um, Just as we get Marvel's version of Thor in our pop culture today, we're getting Christianity's version of Thor and the rest of the gods when we read pretty much any of the surviving texts. Uh, Well, at least to some degree. It's a continuing source of debate in interpreting Norse mythological poetry, how much of it represents the original pagan traditions, and how much has been influenced or modified by either general cultural contact with Christianity in the early Middle Ages, or perhaps has been more deliberately distorted by the Christian writers who produced the actual manuscripts we have. There's a lot we could get into about that debate, um, but I think I'll have to hold on to most of it for a future episode. Going back to the question of the accuracy of the Marvel representation of Norse mythology, having seen the movies, I'd say they're not particularly accurate, but they're actually better than you might think, at least in terms of the core iconography and names. Conveying deeper Old Norse cultural and spiritual values is where they diverge much more profoundly from the sources. I imagine fans of the Thor movies who are moved to learn more about Norse mythology will have an experience similar to what I experienced having grown up on the 1981 Clash of the Titans and the Dungeons & Dragons versions of the monsters of Greek mythology. Obsessing over those versions as a child meant when I started studying classics in college, I had a little bit of a leg up in some regards, but I also had a lot to unlearn. I expect the kid who thinks, yeah, I know who Thor and Odin and Loki and Sif and Heimdall are, and I know what Bifrost the Rainbow Bridge is in Jotunheim, and who Surtur the Fire Giant is, and all about Thor's hammer Mjolnir. I'm really into Norse mythology. That kid is going to eventually find themselves like me, saying, Of course Perseus rode Pegasus. Who's this Bellerophon character? There will be a little bit of a culture shock. Anyway, there is one interesting commonality between comic books and Norse mythology. 
and that is that they're both deeply metonymic. Here I'm thinking of the metonymic function of oral poetry as described by John Foley. As a general bit of poetic jargon, metonymy is the figure of speech where you use a feature or a part of something to stand in for the whole of that thing. Your classic examples are Washington for the whole of the federal government, or hands to mean sailors when you say all hands on deck. For Foley, the metonymic function is when an oral traditional poet makes a quick reference to a character or an event from elsewhere in the tradition, and by doing so, conjures in his audience's mind all the connotations and meanings and significance of that character or story. A small reference unfolds an entire tapestry of meaning. In the oral tradition, stories form a kind of network, all interlinked by their shared characters and shared storylines, and the poet and the audience in an oral culture know all of those stories, so the poet is able to use a kind of shorthand, evoking the emotional or semantic resonance of an entire story or an entire character arc with just a phrase or an epithet. Now, Foley presents this as practically a definitional feature of oral culture, but there is a form of it that persists in literate cultures and in our pop culture as well. There's a bit of a difference in that continual repetition and performance isn't necessary for the very existence of our culture in a literate society, but aesthetically, there are a lot of similarities. Both the Marvel and the DC cinematic universes, and of course, the comic books on which they're based, expect you to recognize and fill in references to other stories that you are presumed to know. Now, the movies, to be more friendly to a general audience, tend to make these metonymic references uh, something a bit more like bonus content, stuff that's there to entertain the nerds, uh, but they try to keep that deep lore from being necessary to understanding the current story. If you know who Jason Todd is and what happened to him, then that quick shot of the Robin costume in Batman v Superman is going to be filled with extended meaning for you. But if you don't, it doesn't affect your ability to follow the plot. But as these cinematic universes get bigger and bigger and pile movie on top of movie, they do start to reach the point where they expect you to know what happened in those earlier movies and to recognize references without spelling them out. You are rather expected to know who the Avengers are and who the Hulk is and who Tony Stark is and all of that information when you go to sit down at Thor Ragnarok. Outside of superhero movies, someone who watches Rogue One, a Star Wars story, is missing out on a huge layer of meaning and significance if they've never seen A New Hope. That movie expects you to know who Darth Vader is, and Grand Moff Tarkin, and Princess Leia, and what the Death Star is going to be used for. They may call it a standalone story, but it's profoundly metonymic. So cameos and Easter eggs are one form of modern mythological metonymy, but going back to superheroes in particular, they share one other trait with oral traditional, and indeed Norse, metonymy, the use of epithets. Our superheroes collect epithets. Batman is the Caped Crusader, the Dark Knight, the world's greatest detective, and one half of the dynamic duo. Superman, Man of Steel, last son of Krypton. Oh, and he's also Clark Kent, and Batman's also Bruce Wayne. That's a lot of names, um, but I think it's a good example. Even those of us who aren't comic book nerds probably recognize most of those names. I like to use this example when I have students who get frustrated reading Norse or Greek texts and who want to know 
why the writers can't just call the gods and heroes by their names instead of these endless streams of epithets that have to constantly be footnoted for the modern reader. Well, their original audience knew that All-Father, Father of the Slain, God of the Hanged, the Masked One, the Blind One, that these were all names for Odin, just as we can recognize the many names of Batman. And they can recognize that those names carry slightly different aspects of the character, just as the Dark Knight suggests a certain tone of Batman that's slightly different from being part of the somewhat campier dynamic duo. Of course, the fact is, we don't know all those names of Odin as well as the original audience did, and there are a lot of epithets and allusions whose meaning we just don't know at all today. And of the ones we can gloss and explain, for many of those, we owe a huge debt to our friend Snorri Sturluson from two episodes ago. Snorri wrote a set of texts on the art of poetry, which necessarily required him to A, quote a lot of traditional poetry, a fair bit of which survives today only in Snorri's quotations, and B, to explain what the more obscure kennings and references were in that poetry. And that brings us straight to our text, or really texts, for today. Our primary text is an Old Norse poem called Voluspau, which means the spow, or prophecy, of the vulva, or, well, there are a lot of translations that have somewhat different sets of baggage for vulva. Uh, the vulva is sometimes called the wise woman, or the seeress, or the prophetess, or the sorceress, or the sibyl, basically a woman with some kind of magical skill at foreseeing the future. And if you're wondering, vulva with an O is unrelated to vulva with a U, which comes from Latin. You'll also see it appear as Vala, V-A-L-A, uh, and indeed we'll hear that in one of our translations today. Vulispau is preserved in mostly complete copies in two manuscripts, with some differences between the two, particularly in terms of the ordering of the stanzas. Dating its composition is a matter of some controversy, and it runs right into that debate about Christian influence and syncretism, uh, but the most broadly accepted date for the poem places it around the year 1000 CE. It's also one of the poems that Snorri quotes sections from in his prose Edda, the text on poetry that I just mentioned. We're going to hear from Snorri as a prefatory text in just a moment. Voluspau is a cosmological poem that describes both the origins and the end of the world. In it, the vulva seems to have been summoned magically, perhaps from beyond the grave, and probably by Odin in one of his manifestations, in order to reveal this knowledge of the fate of the world. It's hard not to see in this conjuring of a spirit echoes of the biblical Witch of Endor or Aeneas consulting the Shades of the Dead, and in this case it's hard not to rule out entirely that those echoes might be real influences. Classical literature and biblical imagery might have been circulating and influencing an Icelandic poet at the turn of the millennium. Yet another debatable point surrounding this poem. Anyway, the vulva speaks her prophecy, and the poem is a monologue though she sometimes refers to herself in the third person, as is not uncommon in these kinds of texts. The poem builds up to its major set piece in the final third, the great battle of the gods of Asgard with the giants and the monstrous agents of chaos and entropy. And the world comes to an end. Well, that world comes to an end, and a new one emerges from the ashes. This end of the world is Ragnarok. The initial element of Ragnarok, Ragna, comes from the genitive of Regan, the ruling powers or the gods. The second element is a bit murkier. Most agree today that it comes from Ruk, meaning a 
range of things, including origin, reason or cause, a course of events, and from that, destiny. There is a kind of obvious profundity in the idea that one word could mean both origin and destiny. I suspect that it only seems paradoxical to us because of the semantics of English. It makes sense that your origin and your destiny or fate are intertwined. I think we feel awkward calling them the same thing just because our available words are kind of fundamentally divided into things focused on beginnings and things focused on endings. One looks backwards, one looks forwards, and thus we struggle to conceptualize how those could be the same idea. And we don't have a word I can think of that bridges these two. Fate maybe comes closest in that your fate encompasses the whole of your life, but fate is still heavily focused on the ending. Though, to be honest, in its use in Ragnarok, the word does have a distinctly forward-looking valence. Fate of the gods is one of the common English translations, and this is rock in the sense of a narrative, of the inevitable outcome of a fixed chain of events. There's an interesting English cognate word to rock, which is rake, a word now chiefly dialectical in the northwest of England, spelled like the tool rake, but meaning a narrow path, especially a mountain path, and especially one along a cliff or through a ravine. In other words, a path that you cannot stray from, that allows only one way forward. And that's what Ragnarok is. It's the course of events from which the gods cannot escape. There's a lot of commentary on fatalism in Norse religion and culture, And Ragnarok is the iconic representation of that. The stories of the mythology include stories of how everything will end that are as specific as those of things that have already happened in the mythic past. The future is already written and unchangeable. Now, you might say, well, Christianity has Judgment Day. Future's already prophesied there, so what's the difference? And my answer would be that Judgment Day does nothing to challenge God's agency. It's presented more like a promise God has made of something that he will bring about, an action he will take, and he can decide when to do it. With Ragnarok, you have a stranger kind of suppression of the agency of the gods, where there is foreknowledge of who is going to fight, and who is going to win, and who is going to be killed, and yet Thor is never going to say, maybe I won't go straight after the Midgard Serpent, or maybe I'll wear some kind of protective salve so that its venom doesn't affect me. The gods themselves know how they will die, and they seemingly accept it. Now, you may have heard another translation of Ragnarok, Twilight of the Gods. There is another rock with two Ks, which does mean twilight in Old Icelandic. Snorri Sturluson explains the etymology of Ragnarok with this meaning. So there's a tradition of this etymology all the way back to the earliest learned writing on Norse myth. Um, and that tradition continued on for centuries. This gives us the German Gotterdämmerung. But, as I mentioned, the linguistically favored etymology now is for the other rock, the destiny one. So, the main events of Ragnarok are laid out in Voluspau. The thing is, though, that Voluspau is an intensely metonymic poem. It is just packed with quick references to stories it assumes you already know about, and it uses all kinds of names for different gods. And while we can identify some of these stories from other surviving poems and texts, or even representations of them on runestones, uh, and some of them Snorri very helpfully explains for us, there remain quite a few that are just mysteries. Even setting the complete mysteries aside, if you look at most modern editions of Olisbau, 
They're loaded up with footnotes and endnotes and glosses, and trying to read the poem and get all the references at the same time requires this constant, horrible stop and start, stop and start, and it sort of spoils the whole thing. When I started working on this episode, I began by trying to put together like a 10-minute crash course on Norse mythology and the major gods and the differences between the Aesir and the Vanir and between gods and giants and dwarves, and basically I realized it could never be enough to process this poem comprehensively. If you're well-grounded in Norse mythology, you'll pick up a good bit. And frankly, if you're well-grounded, you've probably read Voluspal before. If you're just familiar with Tolkien's Middle-Earth or the Jack Kirby and Stan Lee version of Asgard, you'll recognize a lot of names at least. Uh, indeed, one of the fun things about Voluspal is seeing just how directly Tolkien cribbed character names for The Hobbit from it. If Norse mythology is outside your wheelhouse, then my advice is to just let it wash over you. It's visionary literature. In some ways, making sense and speaking plainly is not its goal. That said, we will start with a little medieval cheat sheet to help clarify at least the basic plot of the final half of the poem. One of the parts of Snorri's prose edda is a dialogue called Gilvaginning, in which a Swedish king called Gilvi, Gilvaginning means the tricking of Gilvi, uh, this king tries to travel to Asgard to learn the wisdom of the gods under the assumed name of Gonglery. He ends up in an audience with three figures, Har, or High, uh, another Jafenhar, or just as High, and Thrid, or Third. The king, as Gonglery, questions these three about big issues like the origins and the end of the world. So we'll hear the description of Ragnarok that Har gives Gonglery in Gilvaginning. In his answer, he quotes a bit of Voluspal, so you'll get a quick preview before we get to the poem proper. But it also gives us a much more straightforward and less elusive version of the narrative, so you can have that in your back pocket as you try to follow the more opaque Voluspal version in just a few minutes. But here is the description of Ragnarok from Gilfaginning, as translated by Rasmus B. Anderson. Then said Gonglery, what tidings are to be told of Ragnarok? Of this I have never heard before. Har answered, great things are to be said thereof. First there is a winter called the Fimble Winter, when snow drives from all quarters, the frosts are so severe, the winds so keen and piercing that there is no joy in the sun. There are three such winters in succession without any intervening summer. But before these, there are three other winters, during which great wars rage all over the world. Brothers slay each other for the sake of gain, and no one spares his father or mother in that manslaughter and adultery. Thus says the Vala's prophecy, Brother will fight together and become each other's bane. Sister's children their sib shall spoil. Hard is the world. Sensual sins grow huge. There are axe ages, sword ages, shields cleft in twain. There are wind ages, wolf ages, ere the world falls dead. Then happens what will seem a great miracle, that the wolf devours the sun, and this will seem a great loss. The other wolf will devour the moon, and this too will cause great mischief. The stars shall be hurled from heaven. 
Then it shall come to pass that the earth and the mountains will shake so violently that the trees will be torn up by the roots, the mountains will topple down, and all bonds and fetters will be broken and snapped. The Fenris wolf gets loose. The sea rushes over the earth, for the Midgard serpent writhes in giant rage and seeks to gain the land. The ship that is called Nachfar also becomes loose. It is made of the nails of dead men. Wherefore, it is worth warning that when a man dies with unpaired nails, he supplies a large amount of materials for the building of this ship, which both gods and men wish may be finished as late as possible. But in this flood, Nachfar gets afloat. The giant Hrim is its steersman. The Fenris wolf advances with wide open mouth. The upper jaw reaches to heaven, and the lower jaw is on the earth. He would open it still wider had he room. Fire flashes from his eyes and nostrils. The Midgard serpent vomits forth venom, defiling all the air and the sea. He is very terrible and places himself by the side of the wolf. In the midst of this clash and din, the heavens are rent in twain, and the sons of Muspel come riding through the opening. Surt rides first, and before him and after him, flames burning fire. He has a very good sword, which shines brighter than the sun. As they ride over Bifrost, it breaks to pieces, as has before been stated. The sons of Muspel direct their course to the plain which is called Vigrid. Thither repair also the Fenris wolf and the Midgard serpent. To this place also come Loki and Hrim, and with him all the frost giants. In Loki's companies are the friends of Hel. The sons of Muspel have their effulgent bands alone by themselves. The plain Vigrid is one hundred miles on each side. While these things are happening, Heimdall stands up, blows with all his might in the Yallerhorn, and awakens all the gods who thereupon hold counsel. Odin rides to Mimer's well to ask advice of Mimer for himself and his folk. Then quivers the ash Yggdrasil, and all things in heaven and earth fear and tremble. The Aesir and the slain warriors arm themselves and speed forth to the battlefield. Odin rides first, with his golden helmet, resplendent Burney, and his spear, Gungnir, and he advances against the Fenris wolf. Thor stands by his side, but can give him no assistance, for he has his hands full in his struggle with the Midgard serpent. Frey encounters Surt, and heavy blows are exchanged ere Frey falls. The cause of his death is that he has not that good sword which he gave to Skirner. Even the dog Garm that was bound before the Gnipa gate gets loose. He is the greatest plague. He contends with Tyr and they kill each other. Thor gets great renown by slaying the Midgard serpent, but retreats only nine paces when he falls to the earth dead, poisoned by the venom that the serpent blows on him. The wolf swallows Odin and thus causes his death. But Vidar immediately turns and rushes at the wolf, placing one foot on his nether jaw. On this foot he has the shoe for which materials have been gathering through all ages, namely the strips of leather which men cut off for the toes and heels of shoes. Wherefore, he who wishes to render assistance to the gods must cast these strips away. With one hand, Vidar seizes the upper jaw of the wolf and thus rends asunder his mouth. Thus the wolf perishes. Loki fights with Heimdall and they kill each other. Thereupon, Surt flings fire over the earth and burns up all the world.
Snorri then goes on into some more extensive quotation from Voluspal. But we can just go straight to the poem itself from beginning to end. As I said, I can't, in this format, explain all the plot and references we're plunging into here. As I suggested before, just let it wash over you. It still works as an evocative series of images. The only further notes I'll offer before we begin are a couple of notes on language. Voluspal has a famous refrain, or recurring line. At several points, the Volva asks, Vituterin etafat. This line has a lot of translations, and while they all capture the same basic meaning, they also all have different tones and suggest different attitudes, and interpretations of this line are yet another side of debate. Uh, For example, some translations are, Do you know it yet, or what? Do you understand yet, or what more? Would you know more than this? Would you know yet more? Or one I like, Do you still seek to know, and what? which really brings out a feeling of impatience or even warning. Vituth is from the verb to know or perceive. Er is you, plural, and in is yet or still. Vituth erin, do you perceive it yet? Or do you still want to know? And etha is or, vat is what, so, or what? Vituth erin, etha vat, do you know it yet, or what? It's almost disarmingly modern sounding. And I'll gloss just one name, because it also recurs in a second set of repeated lines. The poem refers to the hound Garm, who will be unleashed at the start of Ragnarok. It's unclear if Garm is another name for the great wolf Fenrir, aka the Fenris wolf, or if they're two separate entities. Snorri, as we heard a moment ago, seems to consider them two different creatures, but others have seen them as being the same, and you can draw your own conclusion as you listen. And there's one other note on names. So in Old Norse or Old Icelandic, you have inflected endings. A common nominative ending is R, and some English translators keep those R's and some drop them. So you'll sometimes see the god Heimdallr, and sometimes Heimdall. The fire giant might be Surtur, as he is in the Marvel movie, in fact, or he might be Surt, as he is in our translation. The corpse-rending dragon might be Nithogr, or he might just be Nithog. There's also an A ending that's sometimes kept, sometimes dropped. Uh, And there's the consonant in the middle of Odin, which takes different forms in different languages. In Icelandic, it's an eth, a kind of softened TH sound, uh, which in English is often transliterated to D. Anderson, in our Snorri translation, gave us Odin with a D. Our Voluspau translator, Henry Adams Bellows, goes with Odin. So if the use of epithets was confusing, you'll also run into these spelling variants as well. And I'll also just confess that I cannot roll my R's the way a proper Norse speaker should, uh, so pardon me, please, for that. Okay, here's the prophecy of the seeress, Voluspau, as translated by Bellows.
hearing, I ask, from the holy races, from Heimdall's sons, both high and low. Thou wilt, Valfather, that well I relate old tales I remember of men long ago. I remember yet the giants of yore, who gave me bread in the days gone by. Nine worlds I knew, the nine in the tree with mighty roots beneath the mold. Of old was the age when Emir lived, sea nor cool waves nor sand there were, earth had not been, nor heaven above, but a yawning gap, and grass nowhere. Then Burr's sons lifted the level land, Midgard the mighty there they made, the sun from the south warmed the stones of earth, and green was the ground with growing leeks. The sun, the sister of the moon from the south, her right hand cast over heaven's rim. No knowledge she had where her home should be. The moon knew not what might was his. The stars knew not where their stations were. Then sought the gods their assembly seats, the holy ones, and council held. Names then gave they to noon and twilight. Morning they named and the waning moon. Night and evening the years to number. At Ithaval met the mighty gods. Shrines and temples they timbered high. Forges they set, and they smithed ore, tongs they wrought, and tools they fashioned. In their dwellings at peace they played at tables, of gold no lack did the gods then know, till thither came up giant maids three, huge of might out of Jotunheim. Then sought the gods their assembly seats, the holy ones, and council held, to find who should raise the race of dwarves out of Bremer's blood and the legs of Blyan. There was Motsognir, the mightiest maid of all the dwarves, and Durin next. Many a likeness of men they made, the dwarves in the earth, as Durin said. Nai and Nithi, Nothri and Suthri, Ostri and Vestri, Althjolf, Valin, Nar and Nyan, Nipping and Dayan, Bifur, Bofur, Bomber, Nori, An and Onar, I, Mjothvitnir. Vig and Gandalf, Vindolf, Thryan, Threk and Thorin, Thror, Vit and Lit, Nearer and neareth, now I have told, Regan and Ratsvith, the list aright. Feely, Keely, Fundin, Nali, Heptifeely, Hanur, Sviur, Thrar, Hornbori, Frag, and Loni, Orvang, Yari, Ekenskjaldi, the race of the dwarves in Dvalin's throng, down to Lofar, the list must I tell. The rocks they left, and through the wetlands they sought a home in fields of sand. There were Dropnir and Dolgthrasir, Hor, Hogspori, Plevang, Glowen, Dori, Ori, Duf, Andvari, Skifer, Vifer, Skafith, Ai, Alf and Ingvi, Akenskjaldi, Fjaller and Frosty, Fith and Ginnar. So for all time shall the tale be known, the list of all the forebears of Lothar. Then from the throng did three come forth from the home of the gods, the mighty and gracious. Two without fate, on land they fought, Ask and Embla, empty of might. Soul they had not, sense they had not, Heat nor motion nor goodly hue. Soul gave Odin, sense gave Honir, Heat gave Lothar and goodly hue. An ash I know, Yggdrasil is its name. With water white is the great tree wet, Thence come the dews that fall in the dales, Green by earth's well does it ever grow. Thence come the maidens, mighty in wisdom, Three from the dwelling down neath the tree, Earth is one named, Verthandi the next, 
On the wood they scored, and sculled the third. Laws they made there, and life allotted to the sons of men, and set their fates. The war, I remember, the first in the world, when the gods with spears had smitten Gulveig, and in the hall of Hor had burned her, three times burned and three times born, often again, yet ever she lives. Haith they named her, who sought their home, the wide-seeing witch in magic wise, minds she bewitched that were moved by her magic, to evil women a joy she was. On the host his spear did Othin hurl, then in the world did war first come. The wall that girdled the gods was broken, and the field by the warlike wains was trodden. Then sought the gods their assembly seats, the holy ones, and council held, whether the gods should tribute give, or to all alike should worship belong. Then sought the gods their assembly seats, the holy ones, and council held, to find who with venom the air had filled, or had given Oth's bride to the giant's brood. In swelling rage then rose up Thor, seldom he sits when he hears such things, and the oaths were broken, the words and bonds, the mighty pledges made between them. I know of the horn of Heimdall, hidden under the high-reaching holy tree. On it there pours from Valfather's pledge a mighty stream. Would you know yet more? Alone I sat, when the old one sought me, the terror of gods, and gazed in mine eyes. What hast thou to ask? Why comest thou hither? Odin, I know where thine eye is hidden. I know where Odin's eye is hidden, deep in the wide-famed well of Mimer. Mead from the pledge of Odin each morn does Mimer drink. Would you know yet more? Necklaces had I, and rings from here, father. Wise was my speech and my magic wisdom. Widely I saw over all the worlds. On all sides saw I Valkyries assemble, ready to ride to the ranks of the gods. Skuld bore the shield, and Skogel rode next. Guth hilled Gondol and Gerskogel, of Herion's maiden the list have ye heard. Valkyries ready to ride o'er the earth. I saw for Baldur, the bleeding god, the son of Odin, his destiny set. Famous and fair in the lofty fields, full grown in strength, the mistletoe stood. From the branch which seemed so slender and fair came a harmful shaft that Hoth should hurl. But the brother of Baldur was born ere long, and one night old fought Odin's son. His hands he washed not, his hair he combed not, till he bore to the bale blaze Baldur's foe. But in Finsalar did Frigg weep sore for Valhall's need. Would you know yet more? One did I see in the wet woods bound, a lover of ill, and to Loki-like. By his side does Sigyn sit, nor is glad to see her mate. Would you know yet more? From the east there pours, through poisoned vales, with swords and daggers, the river Slith. Northward a hall in Nithaveller, of gold there rose for Sindri's race, and in Okolnir another stood, where the giant Bremer his beer hall had. A hall I saw, far from the sun, on Nastrond it stands, and the doors face north. Venom drops through the smoke vent down, for around the walls do serpents wind. I saw there, wading through rivers wild, treacherous men, and murderers too, and workers of ill with the wives of men. 
There Nithog sucked the blood of the slain, and the wolf tore men. Would you know yet more? The giantess old in Ironwood sat, in the east, and bore the brood of Finrir. Among these one in monster's guise was soon to steal the sun from the sky. There he feeds full on the flesh of the dead, and the home of the gods he reddens with gore. Dark grows the sun, and in summer soon come mighty storms. Would you know yet more? On a hill there sat, and smote on his harp, Aegthir the joyous, the giant's warder. Above him the cock in the birdwood crowed, fair and red did Fjallar stand. Then to the gods crowed Golemkambi, he wakes the heroes in Odin's hall, and beneath the earth does another crow, the rust-red bird at the bars of hell. Now Garm howls loud before Nipaheller. The fetters will burst and the wolf run free. Much do I know and more can see of the fate of the gods, the mighty in fight. Brothers shall fight and fell each other, and sisters' sons shall kinship stain. Hard it is on earth with mighty whoredom, axe time, sword time, shields are sundered, wind time, wolf time, ere the world falls nor shall men each other spare. Fast move the sons of Mim, and fate is heard in the note of the Yallerhorn. Loud blows Heimdall, the horn is aloft, in fear quake all who on hell roads are. Yggdrasil shakes, and shiver on high the ancient limbs, and the giant is loose. To the head of Mim does Odin give heed, but the kinsmen of Surt shall slay him soon. How fare the gods? How fare the elves? All Jotunheim groans. The gods are at council. Loud roar the dwarves by the doors of stone, the masters of the rocks. Would you know yet more? Now Garm howls loud before Nipaheller. The fetters will burst and the wolf run free. Much do I know and more can see of the fate of the gods, the mighty in fight. From the east comes Hrim with shield held high. In giant wrath does the serpent writhe. O'er the waves he twists, and the tawny eagle gnaws corpses, screaming, Nokfar is loose. O'er the sea from the north there sails a ship with the people of hell. At the helm stands Loki. After the wolf do wild men follow, and with them the brother of Byleist goes. Surt fares from the south with the scourge of branches. The son of the battle god shone from his sword. The crags are sundered, the giant women sink, the dead throng hellway, and heaven is cloven. Now comes to Hlin yet another hurt, when Odin fares to fight with the wolf, and Beli's fair slayer seeks out Surt, for there must fall the joy of Frigg. Then comes Siegfather's mighty son, Vithar, to fight with the foaming wolf. In the giant's son does he thrust his sword, full to the heart, his father is avenged. Hither there comes the son of Lothan, the bright snake gapes to heaven above. Against the serpent goes Odin's son. In anger smites the warder of the earth. Forth from their homes must all men flee. Nine paces fares the son of Fjorgen, and slain by the serpent, fearless he sinks. The sun turns black. Earth sinks in the sea. The hot stars down from heaven are whirled. Fierce grows the steam and the life-feeding flame till fire leaps high about heaven itself. Now Garm howls loud before Nipaheller, 
the fetters will burst and the wolf run free. Much do I know, and more can see of the fate of the gods, the mighty in fight. Now do I see the earth anew, rise all green from the waves again. The cataracts fall, and the eagle flies, and fish he catches beneath the cliffs. The gods in Ethaval meet together. Of the terrible girdler of earth they talk, and the mighty past they call to mind, and the ancient runes of the ruler of gods. In wondrous beauty, once again shall the golden tables stand mid the grass, which the gods had owned in days of old. Then fields unsowed bear ripened fruit, and all ills grow better, and Balder comes back. Balder and Hoth dwell in Hrop's battle hall, and the mighty gods. Would you know yet more? Then Honor wins the prophetic wand, and the sons of the brothers of Tvegi abide in Vindheim now. Would you know yet more? More fair than the sun, a hall I see, roofed with gold, on Gimli it stands. There shall the righteous rulers dwell, and happiness ever there they shall have. There comes on high, all power to hold, a mighty lord, all lands he rules. From below, the dragon dark comes forth. Nithog flying from Nithafjol. The bodies of men on his wings he bears, the serpent bright. But now I must sing. So that's Volusbau. This concluding scene of a kind of Edenic rebirth of the world, with the surviving descendants of the old gods marveling over these remains of the old world, these golden tables or game pieces lying in the grass, the same ones presumably that the gods were described playing with in the first days of Asgard at the start of the poem. And then this image of some one mighty lord returning. Some point to this as a possible Christian interpolation into the poem. Others have read it as proof of pagans having prophecies of Christ, just like Virgil was said to have prophesied the nativity in the eclogues. And, of course, others have seen it as a Norse religious image that just happens to make use of the incredibly common trope across religions of a returning divinity. But one thing that does seem characteristically Nordic here is that even the idyllic scene pans down at the very end to the death dragon Nithogger, still there, still flying, and a shadow is cast over this happily ever after. I thought I'd conclude by sharing something I love with you, which is a snippet of a musical performance of this poem uh, in the original language by the early music ensemble Sequentia. Sequentia was founded by Benjamin Bagby and the late Barbara Thornton, both of whom you'll hear in this track, uh, along with Lena Suzanne Norin as the third vocalist and Elizabeth Gaver on fiddle. This is from a whole album of medieval Icelandic poetry entitled Edda, which was Thornton's last record before her death. 
Sequentia's performance is highly speculative, since we don't really have any documentation of musical traditions in Iceland from before the early modern period, Um, but they have a serious and intensive methodology that they use to generate these performances. I'll play for you the moment in Voluspau where the battle kicks off. Depending on your ear for languages, you might be able to pick out a few words and names. It starts with two female voices, which is how most of the poem is performed, singing the stanza, Then to the gods crowed Golem Kambi, he wakes the heroes in Odin's hall, and beneath the earth does another crow, the rust-red bird at the bars of hell. Then the male voice joins in, and we move to that repeated verse about Garm being unleashed, and the lines, Much do I know and more can see of the fate of the gods and the mighty in fight. Fate of the gods is, of course, Ragnarok, and I hope you'll be able to hear that word coming out. Then we hear how the world descends into violence with brothers killing brothers and sisters, sons defiling their families and axe time, sword time, wind time, wolf time, all that jazz. And so here it is, Sequentia's performance of Voluspau. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that. As we wrap up, I just want to offer one word of caution to the movie fan who wants to dive into quote-unquote real Norse mythology. Just bear in mind that there's very little we actually know, and a lot of uncertainty, even about the things we think we do know. There are lots of popular books of mythology that are happy to lay it all out in a tidy system with coherent, unified narratives, and who make everything seem very clear-cut and authoritative. But remember that the reality is that all we have is a lot of fragments, bits and pieces stitched together by just theories modern theories, and medieval theories. I find that kind of exciting myself. It keeps the whole thing as a dynamic system forever debatable. Our mystery word from last time was metnast. Fittingly, this is an old Icelandic verb, meaning to puff oneself up. There's another verb, meta, which means to estimate or to value uh, or to assign value, And metnast is a reflexive form of that, so meaning to do that to yourself, to assign value to yourself. 
Now, meta does not have an inherently negative connotation, um, but there are adjectives that use forms of it that show us when it's applied to people, it means ambition shading into pride. One of the reasons I like this word is that I think it's a very useful concept, uh, and it's a verb that I can't think of us having an equivalent of in English. Maybe if you use self-esteem as a verb, you know, to esteem oneself, or auto-estimation, um, but that's not really any kind of established usage. And, uh, you know, let's just move on to our riddle. Our new riddle is... The shining pelican, whose yawning throat gulps down the waters of the sea, long since produced me, white as he. Through snowy fields I keep a straight road, leaving deep blue tracks upon the gleaming way, and darkening the fair champagne with black and torturous paths. Yet one way through the plain suffices not, for a thousand bypaths runs the road, and them who stray not from it, it leads to heaven. That's a long one, um, and I'll give it to you one more time. The shining pelican, whose yawning throat gulps down the waters of the sea, long since produced me, white as he. Through snowy fields I keep a straight road, leaving deep blue tracks upon the gleaming way, and darkening the fair champagne with black and torturous paths. Yet one way through the plain suffices not, for with a thousand bypaths runs the road, and them who stray not from it, it leads to heaven." I'll be back with the answer next episode. Until then, you don't have to put out a bowl of blood to summon the dead to get in touch with us. Well, I guess it depends on the particular Twitter app you use. Um, but you can summon us through Twitter by invoking at MDT podcast, or you can email me at patrick at medievaldeathtrip.com. Uh, and that base URL will take you to our website where you can find more information about this and every episode, including references to the sources I used, and for this episode in particular, uh, links to the Sequencia tracks on Spotify. To my fellow Americans, let me wish you all a happy Thanksgiving. And to everyone, let me give my thanks to you for listening, which I express in the following words. Thanks for listening. Do you wish to hear more, or what? Uh, if you do, just tune in next episode.